Green Teacher's main office is located on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabek, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga peoples. This territory is covered by the Williams Treaty. We want to be teaching the teachers as well as teaching the students. So if we can educate the teachers, then they can educate a whole lot more people than we can. We encourage very simple projects mm -hmm. because simple projects are sustainable projects. And it was just remarkable how many pollinator plants were there and how many native plants were there and trees started to grow. And all the kids had to do was rope it off and take pictures and learn. Testing, testing. Hey, I'm Ian. And I'm Sophia. And welcome to Talking with Green Teachers. This is the Environmental Education Podcast, where we discuss recent developments, big ideas, and creative approaches to teaching green. In this episode... I think the biggest obstacle is just having teachers and mentors give it a try. They think it's going to be too much work. Right. And so a lot of times, you know, they're overwhelmed to start with in their jobs and they think, I don't need one more thing on my plate. What has saved us from this is that people tend to move around in their jobs. So if there was a teacher at a Green Step school and she moves to double-check that your mug of tea is in the car before setting off to the meeting place. Yes, it's there. Keys? Check. Wallet? Check. Alright, you're ready to go meet your mentor and start placing bluebird boxes. Mentorship is a major part of the Green Step Schools program in South Carolina. Jane Healer is the program's coordinator as well as a member of the parent organization, the Environmental Education Association of South Carolina. She joined Ian to discuss the value of community mentors, the ins and outs of student-powered learning, and what makes a sustainability project effective. So before we get into the origins and mission of the Green Step Schools program, let's talk about one of its core priorities, student-powered learning. So why is this so integral to the program? Student-powered learning is important because we believe that this is how students learn best. Green Steps was founded on the belief that optimal learning takes place when students learn and do and then teach others. The learning come, can come from teachers or guest speakers, videos, readings, research, activities, all different kinds of, of learning options. The doing is using what they learned to do a project that improves the environment. And then teaching others can be a zillion things as well. It can be YouTube, uh, school news programs, school or local newspapers, skits, uh, bulletin boards, any way that uh, the students have a way to get the message out to others. Do you ever get feedback from the students about this process? Because I could imagine that at first they may seem a bit nervous to think, oh my goodness, I'm leading my own learning. I mean, how novel of an idea, but at the end of these projects or at the end of a school year, for example, do they ever give feedback 
And if so, what has that been? Um, it's been really positive. Uh, a lot of these projects are designed by the students, so nice. uh, which really gives them a lot of uh, excitement about being in the projects. It's not just somebody telling them what they're going to do. They get to uh, work together to come up with the ideas. And uh, probably the most popular thing with the kids is making the YouTube videos. They absolutely love making videos about right. whatever whatever um, they have learned. So that's been uh, super positive and you can just see their excitement. We're going to have a whole generation of young people with exceptional video editing skills. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're always interested in the why on this show and I'm really particularly keen to learn about the conceptual underpinnings or the why of the Green Step Schools program. So can you sort of walk us through that? So our goal is to recognize and award schools for establishing sustainability projects where students are doing that learning, doing, teaching others model. Right. And uh, our jo major job is here to connect mentors with those schools to guide and evaluate those projects. So uh, we just, we, we want to be cheerleaders for the teachers. We want, if there are teachers out there that want to help their kids establish sustainability projects, we want to be there to support that. Absolutely. Were there any sort of initial challenges in the early stages? I mean, this program started in 2003. You gave your first awards in 2004. It's always getting over that initial hump, right? with any sort of new initiative, what were some of the initial challenges way back almost 20 years ago? It was slow starting. Uh, our first mm -hmm. year we gave awards. There was one school that got awards. I mean, it was, uh, you know, we were feeling our way. And for several years, I would say 10 years, probably, we changed things up almost every year because we found something that wasn't working really well. And uh, we were not married to any of our concepts we were like whatever's going to work best for mentors and teachers to come together to help kids we were all about that we were also all about making it as easy as possible teachers have a tough job to start with oh yeah so they don't need they don't need something difficult um, added to their plate what they need is great hands-on learning to teach what they're already supposed to be teaching using the environment as the lens for that and I know you've got teacher feedback in the form of video on your website. What is some feedback you've received from teachers just as this program has endured over the past sort of 18, 19 years? Um, a lot of school uh, teachers just love it. There's one on our website. There's one teacher, a uh, high school teacher, who has actually applied to her school district to make Green Steps the whole curriculum for her environmental science class. Wow. So uh, that's that tells you something about how strongly they feel about how this can work with their students. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. We've also had teachers tell us that they've had teachers apply to be at their school based on Green Steps. So, you know, they one, one teacher was so excited because there was a teacher they were really hoping would choose to come to their their building. And uh, he said that was the deciding factor, was that he wanted to be part of this program. That's certainly a, a pretty good indicator of success, I would think. Yeah, I think for the people that who this speaks to, I think it's, um, I think it's very motivating. It is. 
Talking with Green Teachers is produced by Green Teacher, a registered charity in Canada that has been enhancing environmental education since 1986. By taking out a subscription, you can join our global network of passionate environmental educators, receive each issue of our quarterly magazine, and gain exclusive access to our vast archive of webinars and magazine back issues. All proceeds go back into the organization to support our vision of helping each successive generation of young learners become more environmentally literate than the last. To learn more, visit greenteacher.com. As you approach the first stop, you notice on the nearest fence post a female bluebird, immediately recognizable with its hunched over posture. The mentor hasn't arrived yet, but you are a bit early. For participating schools or classes, what is the process like sort of on the ground? Okay, so we have on our website, we have something called how to be a green step school. And uh, it walks. Uh, so if somebody's just interested in, you know, what we do, and maybe if they might be interested, they can take a look there. There's a little training, quick training video to kind of give them a, a little taste of it. And if they decide they want to give it a try, all they have to do to be a Green Step School is just tell us they want to be a Green Step School. And I like so, it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, this is not complicated. So if they want to, then they either suggest somebody that they think would be a good mentor, and then we vet that person and see if it's going to be a fit, or we recommend mentors for them, depending on the projects that they're interested in doing. So this is never us telling them what to do. It's always us showing them uh, some popular projects. And if any of those appeal to them, that's great. If not, they can come up with their own project. As long as it, um, we feel it's doing something where kids are going to benefit from the, from the thing. So once they uh, have a mentor, they meet with their mentor twice during the year for about an hour meeting or so. Uh, once in the fall to uh, make a plan for what they want to do during that school year. Once in the spring, uh, so uh, the mentors come back and just kind of check and see what progress has been made on the, on the project. And then during the year, uh, mentors are there um, as resource people, as supporters, as cheerleaders, just to make this easy for the teachers to work with their children. And looking at that more broadly, what is the value of having those mentors? And I know one of the guidelines is that they cannot be teachers or parents from that school. But what is it about mentorship that is so valuable to this program? Well, first of all, our mentors, uh, we try to select mentors that have some experience and expertise in that topic. And they probably right. have more expertise than a typical classroom teacher would have because you know their experience is more focused. So we, we want to be teaching the teachers as well as teaching the students. So if we can educate the teachers, then they can educate a whole lot more people than, than we can. So that's number one. Right. Um, and then um, the other thing is the reason we don't want parents or um, teachers being mentors at their own school is because we want third-party objectivity in terms of looking at these projects and we, we try to keep the 
rules are the same for schools around the state. So if, you know, we don't use one set of rules for one school and one set of rules for another school. So we right. want to keep it, it even. And that tends to work best if we have a third parties uh, coming in and working with the schools. Do you think that having these mentors has allowed this program to be sustainable or at an individual school? I know it's a big priority to make sure that these aren't just one and done programs. Is having those mentors integral to the sustainability? I think it is. And I think one of the reasons is that what we're doing is we're, we're putting informal educators together with formal educators. And for a lot of our informal educators, this is part of their job description at work. They're supposed to be doing soil and water outreach in their community, or they're supposed to be doing recycling education in their community, or they work for the state government and they're supposed to be, you know, getting out and getting word out about uh, programs. So um, they are very motivated to get into schools and have this opportunity to work with teachers and students. The other thing is our Informal educators, our mentors, and our teachers tend to develop great relationships. I bet. So that that makes it sustainable because you know they're all they're there cheering them on, and uh, we send stuff out all the time. If we run across something that we think would be good for a specific school or for a lot of our schools, we're always sending weekly sending ideas out that things they can plug into. That really happened during COVID when um, everything shut down and we were looking for ways to reach out to teachers and kids on the internet rather than because we couldn't be there in person. Yeah. And at the moment, just to get an idea of statistics, how many schools, how many programs, and how many mentors do you have? Um, well, things really slowed down during COVID, although we, <laughs> of did, uh, um, we did, now things are starting to pick up again, and we do have some new schools that were not involved. We have some schools we haven't heard from for a while, but we're hoping that once things, teachers are just so exhausted right now. They're just Especially beyond now. exhausted. Yeah. yeah. So I think typically we run in about 13 of our 40 counties, 40 some counties in South Carolina that are active. And typically we have uh, somewhere around 30 schools participating and about that many mentors actually, because typically schools have multiple mem mentors working with them because they're experts in different topics. Yeah. It's this community-based learning that I learned so much about. And it seems like in the U.S. it has a much bigger role in education than it does in many parts of Canada. I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't happen in Canada, but I just, I hear about community-based learning and service learning much more when I speak to educators in the United States. And it, it's just so gratifying to hear that because it's foundational to place-based education, which mm -hmm. is foundational to environmental education. We have some teachers that only sign up for service learning projects. They just yeah. love getting their kids involved in service learning. So a lot of the schools really gravitate toward that. Yeah, well, I can understand why. It makes our kids better citizens, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, for sure. Did you know that a subscription to Green Teacher includes access to our massive and fast-growing archive of 500-plus ready-to-use activities, lesson plans, and articles? The recording of each new webinar goes into the archive, too, and there are 120 of those and counting. 
to save you time because educators never have enough of it, right? Everything is organized by topic and age group. Learn more by visiting greenteacher.com slash subscribe. We also have special rates available for bulk orders from your school, board, district, faculty of ed, or organization. As always, all proceeds go back into the nonprofit. While the female bluebird feeds on insects in the grass below, a male joins the fray before settling for a few minutes on the wire fence, two posts down from the female. Let's get into the fun part, talking about the projects. And I know they're categorized into three broad areas, conserve, protect, and restore. I know there are so many examples in almost two decades, but can you share one or two, maybe some recent examples from each of the categories? Okay, so uh, the conserve, protect, and restore, we just kind of figured out as we went along. Uh, we kept coming up with projects and saying, well, where does that fit? And <laughs> um, and after a while, we figured out that everything we came up with tended to fit in one of those three categories. So that's how we ended up with the three categories. This was very much uh, learn by doing. No, that's um, on our how part. it works. Yep. So under conserve, we do things like the schools, the students do things like reduce, reuse, recycle, conserving energy, and something we call green purchasing, where students make or sell things, uh, grow things that then they sell so that they can have some money coming back into their program to buy the things that they might need. Most of our projects cost nothing or very little unless you want to do something bigger. Um, so, but nothing that costs much money is required for this program. In terms of waste reduction, the reduce, reuse, recycle piece, a lot of school waste happens in lunchrooms. That's where the majority of waste comes out of, out of uh, schools. Of course. And so, uh, yeah, so it's, it's a prime place to do some projects that can really have a big impact on reducing waste at a school. So I'm going to give you some, the, the examples I'm going to give you are things that anybody could do. Uh, you know, some places there are opportunities that there aren't other places, but these are things that anybody could do. So one of our projects is, I mean, we really try to work on reducing food waste and reducing cafeteria waste or lunchroom waste. So one popular project is called tap and stack. And basically uh, students just are taught to tap the food off of their tray and then stack the trays. And again, it just depends where you are, what your options are. Some schools have washable trays so they can stack, stack those and send them into the cafeteria where they're gonna go through the dishwasher. Uh, that's a really good option, but some schools don't have dishwashing ability or staff to do that. So uh, we do have some schools that have compostable trays and they actually have composting, commercial composting projects. So they can compost their tray right along with all of their organics. But the majority of our schools still have styrofoam trays. Mm. Uh, they're the cheapest and take the less, least amount of work on for staff people at the school, don't require dishwashers. So uh, that's this is still an option for schools because the kids can tap off their food, they can stack the styrofoam trays into a neat pile. It ends up being one bag of trash rather than halter skelter um, <laughs> trays and food going in that bag. And it ends up being considerably a lot less waste going into the dumpster, which means that there are fewer trips from the garbage truck. 
Uh, so there's a lot less traffic on the roads that in resulting pollution that comes from that. So we feel like this is something that is in the kids' power to do, and it makes a difference in terms of their environment. Another project in the cafeteria is we love share tables, where if kids have unopened food like crackers or cookies or chips or something that they're not going to eat, they can simply put it on the share table and anybody else is welcome to take that item. So if you picture an elementary school, you have kindergartners and you have fifth graders. Well, the kindergartners don't eat a lot. The fifth no. graders eat a lot. <laughs> so sometimes, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, it evens it, itself out. Um, they can also put on their fruits that have, do not have edible peels uh, that have to be peeled so that you're not talking about uh, germs on the on the peel. So that would be like ban bananas and oranges. Mm -hmm. And they can put unopened cartons of milk and yogurt on there as long as there's a cooler uh, to keep that stuff cool while um, while it's sitting on the chair table. So that has made a big difference in terms of how much food gets thrown away and getting food to kids who are still hungry. And if we look at something like Project Drawdown, we see how highly ranked reducing food waste is in terms of mitigation of climate change. And, you know, it's not just about climate change. It's about habitat. It's about biodiversity. There's so much connected to it. But wow. And it's so simple. I mean, I, I hear these ideas and I saw the video that you sent along with the tap and stack and it's just so doable. It's great. Yeah. That, most of our projects are, we encourage very simple projects. Because simple projects are sustainable projects. Yeah. Ooh, once like they get that. too once they get too complicated, then if the teacher who's leading that project leaves, the whole thing collapses. Right. If it's a simple project, it can be built into the culture of the school and it's just going to continue, uh, regardless of, you know, the kids know how to do it and they're just going to carry on and do it. So yeah. we love those kind of projects. What about on the protect side? What are some of the standout activities there? So uh, again, easy projects. Uh, one of our favorites is teaching kids to make a non-toxic classroom cleaner out of their uh, leftover orange peels and a jug of white vinegar. Uh -huh. And uh, they learn how to do that and can clean their own classrooms or lunchroom tables or whatever. It kills germs, but it is not dangerous for breathing like a lot of cleaners are and it's not dangerous if it's going down the drain so we think that's good for air quality and for water quality it's super easy and kids are excited to clean their desk if they've made the cleaner and then they also <laughs> learn how to make that when they go home it saves a lot of money you're not buying expensive cleaners so a lot of this a lot of these things that conserve natural resources also conserve dollars so it's an easier sell with parents one of my very favorite air quality projects ever is having schools reduce the amount of mowed areas at their school. Um, so, and just giving that mowed area back to nature uh, and letting nature take over. One high school uh, did this. They identified a strip of land uh, that really was not necessary to for mowing. The freshman class that year worked with the maintenance crew to rope off a quarter of that strip of land. They put up, they roped it off. They put up a no, no mow science study sign and uh -huh. the uh, mowing crew left alone and just let it happen. And twice a year, then the kids would uh, take 
go out and identify what was growing up there, what nature was putting back in into the into the plot of land, take pictures, and then they started a bulletin board. This thing went on for seven years. So each freshman class started their plot. And the next year that freshman class started their plot. And so by the end of seven years, they had photos of how nature took back over this plot of land. And it was just remarkable how many pollinator plants were there and how many native plants were there and trees started to grow. And all the kids had to do was rope it off and take pictures and learn. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so automatic and it's amazing. I mean, people think, oh, if you leave a lawn, uh, if you leave the lawn alone, it just sprouts more grass. And it's like, in most cases, no, it sprouts an incredible number of things. And as you mentioned, trees, native species, pollinators, and so on. Biodiversity all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that links very nicely to the third category, Restore, and that's something I'm very passionate about. So what are some of the Restore projects? So with Restore, we have Restoring Soil and Restoring Habitat. Those are our two main categories. There are many of us that feel like soil is the basis of almost everything, and Mm -hmm. uh, we insist that schools have soil projects if they're going to be a certified school. Uh, We also insist under soil that, well, they can either do composting or they can do uh, preventing erosion kind of projects, depending Mm -hmm. on their school property. Um, Some of them do both. But if they're doing composting, we insist that they do both indoor classroom composting, which would be things uh, like a vermicompost, which is a vermicompost bin. Yes. Um, And vermicomposting is great because the kids can see up close Um, how this happens. They can actually adopt a worm and uh, (laughs) watch them turn damp newspaper and fruit scraps into wonderful plant food. Uh, They can also learn about the anatomy of worms. They can search for worm sacs, egg sacs. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's just so much learning that goes into it. And I would say out of all the projects I've done over the years, this is always the kid's favorite. They absolutely love those Fermi bins, and we just make them out of discarded styrofoam coolers that we get from vets, typically where their medicine come comes in. So cost nothing, and then we have friendship worms. So uh, once you've got worms going, you're going to have lots of worms, and you can pass them on to somebody else. Uh, we also encourage schools to have outdoor composting, a garden compost uh, project, so that they can learn how to compost in their own backyard. So um, what, what happens in a, in a little vermi bin is not going to deal with a whole lot of organic material. So we want them to learn how to compost their organics at home. And this can be, again, cheap, uh, discarded pal- wooden pallets and zip ties. That's all you need to put one sure. together. Uh, I've, I've built them with kindergartners. Uh, you know, this is, it, it's easy. And then, you know, they figure out the whole thing about layering greens and browns and the nitrogen and carbon involved and and all of that stuff. And we tend to sing lots of songs. Uh, We may, even older kids, uh, you know, they'll get into it. Um, So we sing, uh, yeah, we sing songs to our worms and uh, about our worms. And we try to make this fun and have a good time, uh, you know, while they're doing it. And they do, they make skits up about this and perform it for people. So it's, it's really fun. And then most schools that start with composting almost always move to garden projects because they've got this wonderful compost. What are you going to do with it if you're not going to 
put it outside and feed a plant. That's it. So uh, they can either they can either just feed a tree or they can uh, sprinkle around the grass if that's what they want to do. But most of them will start gardens. And gardens for our projects can be as small as a hula hoop. We have what we call hula hoop gardens for those teachers who are just a little leery about starting something bigger. Um, so we don't insist on big gardens. Big gardens can end up being a lot of work. And oh, there yeah. are teachers that want big gardens. They want uh, all kinds of stuff, but that's on them. That's not because that's what we're requiring. So uh, we do all kinds of gardens. Our schools do all kinds of gardens. There are a lot of edible gardens, either things that are edible for human beings or edible for wildlife. And a lot of this ends up being good health education for kids because a lot of kids have never seen a vegetable grow or fruit Mm. grow. And uh, they don't know where this comes from other than the grocery store. Um, we do a uh, blind test tastes. So uh, the winter root vegetables that they've never tasted in the world, they, you know, get to taste things uh, like that. And they learn that fresh, healthy food is good when they may not have ever given that a, given that a try before. So we feel like it's um, really exciting. You were talking about something that's new. I was just at a school yesterday and their first graders are doing what they call a math garden. And uh, the kids Ooh. made this up. And uh, this is out of 19 years of doing this. This is the first math garden I've seen. And uh, this first grade teacher was just phenomenal. But she is teaching the kids to count and add and even multiply in first grade by measuring and counting their plants, counting the petals on the plants, counting the leaves on the plants. They're also uh, learning to put angles in their garden. So they were learning different angles. And uh, these kids are just so excited about the math that they're learning while they're tending their garden. So it's, it's just exciting to see how the kids react to these things and how much you can learn outside of just gardening while you're doing this. Yeah, we've certainly written and spoken a lot about school gardening and the value of greening school grounds at Green Teacher and everything you've just said just reaffirms that. Yeah. There's also a lot of schools with beehives, bluebird uh, trails. Oh, I love uh, those. Nature, nature trails where that the kids enjoy as well. So there's a lot of habitat, frog projects, uh, wood duck projects. Mm, yeah. So a lot, a lot of, um, a lot of animal projects as well as just gardens too yeah and i'd imagine those are very popular who doesn't like bringing animals close to where you're living working learning etc i know what's better than a frog chorus right yeah hi there you might recognize my voice from such podcasts as the one you're listening to right now speaking of podcasts green teacher is involved in another one it's called earthy chats and you know what how about I let my co-host, Jade Harvey Barrel, tell you the rest? Take it away, Jade. Thanks, Ian. Hello, all. Indeed, we'd love for you to join us for Earthy Chats, our new podcast where we've come together to spend time picking the brains of the brightest and best in environmental education. Like busy bees, we'll be cross-pollinating ideas across our range of interests and knowledge bases to give you the inside scoop on what's new, who's doing it, and how you can do it too. All of the experts featured on the show have resources available Canada-wide in the Outdoor Learning Store. 
that's Canada's non-profit outdoor resource store. You can check out the range of educator and student resources available at www.outdoorlearningstore.ca. So whether you're a teacher, educator, parent, or just a general nature geek, there'll be something for you to sink your teeth into. Did I cover everything there, Ian? Definitely. Thanks, Jade. So yeah, Earthy Chats. Check it out on your favorite podcast app. Both bluebirds are now settled in position, and you contemplate taking out your camera and maybe even your field notebook. Two headlights appear in the distance. Well, you're coming up to your 20th anniversary in 2023, and you mentioned earlier about some of the initial obstacles and getting over that first hump. What have been some of the other obstacles you've overcome that have allowed you to sustain this program for so long? I think the biggest obstacle is just having teachers and mentors give it a try. They think it's going to be too much work. Right. And so a lot of times, you know, they're overwhelmed to start with in their jobs and they think I don't need one more thing on my plate. What has saved us from this is that people tend to move around in their jobs. So if there was a teacher at a green step school and she moves to another school, she's much more likely to start a green step project at her new school. Hmm. And the same thing with the mentors. If they leave one agency and go to another agency or another not-for-profit or whatever, they see that, you know, we call it lots of gain with very little pain. This, this uh, project, these projects are not hard. It does not take a lot of your time. It's just a matter of, because um, you're going to be teaching anyway, and you want to teach with hands-on learning. Everybody wants hands-on learning. Yeah. So these are just some great hands-on learning things that they have, teachers have mentors to help them uh, set up and pull off uh, during the year and sustain. So um, I, I think that's been our major obstacle and it kind of fixes itself as it goes along just because people do tend to move around a little bit. Yeah, so, sort of sounds like the best antidote to the challenge and the initial resistance is we'll just try it. And once they've tried it and they see how effective it is, it just takes care of itself. Yeah, and then it's word of mouth. They talk to other teachers or other mentors who are doing this. And the fact that they get awards really helps because, uh, I mean, some of our schools are not going to get awards for other things. Hmm. Uh, we deal with a lot of Title I schools and schools that may not um, get big awards for certain things. But uh, anybody can get awards for this if they just work with a mentor and find something that fits their curriculum. We really want them to work on their standards. So a lot of our schools, uh, especially elementary schools, have every grade level does a different project. So as the kids move through the grades, they get to experience different projects. And that way the teachers are just working on one thing, but the kids get a lot of experience over that five or six years that they're in that school. Yeah. Well, any final advice for educators? I mean, we have listeners all across North America and beyond. We've actually had listeners now in 75 different countries. So for, yeah, yeah, the number just keeps going up and up. Um, For anybody who's thinking, hey, this sounds great. I'd like to replicate at least some aspects of it. What would you suggest? 
I would say try to bring formal and informal educators together somehow to mm -hmm. learn from each other because there's a lot to be learned. Informal educators a lot of times don't have an education background. So uh, they are wanting to know, how do I speak to a third grader? Um, you know, what are, how does that work? And so they can learn a lot from the formal educators and the, the informal educators have more usually more specific experience and knowledge about that specific topic that the formal educators can learn. So uh, it tends to just be a great way to bring them together. We do that here through an organization called EEASC, which is the Environmental Education Association of South Carolina, where formal and informal educators come together. And you may have a similar local organization where you live, where you know there are, is a coming together of those two groups. And I would say work with that group and see how you can connect um, with across those or um, across those lines. You can check us out at eeasc.org. You can go on there and see all the different things that we do. Um, we are busy, busy, busy doing all kinds of stuff. So uh, go on our website and take a look at what we've got coming up in June. Uh, it'll be June 9th through the 11th this year. And we do it every year. So if you can't come this year, uh, pencil it in next year uh, because we'd love to share those ideas with you. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, Jane. Really great to hear about such an inspiring program, seeing community-based learning in action. And uh, I will have uh, somewhat of a presence at your conference. I'll be, uh, I'll be doing a pre-recorded video about how oh, members can best use a green teacher subscription. So I'll sort of be there virtually. Yeah, that's one of our member benefits is now uh, yeah. that, uh, our, our members get a green teacher membership. So that's that's awesome. And Ian, thank you so much for this opportunity. Yeah, a great pleasure. Both ends. You exchange a few pleasantries with the mentor as you both enjoy the presence of the Bluebird pair that will hopefully take residence in a soon to be installed nest box. After mentioning how popular this project will be with your students, the mentor smiles and says, well, shall we get started? Talking with Green Teachers is co-hosted by Ian Shanahan and me, Sofia Vargasnesi. Ian is the show's writer and editor. Logo design is by Devin Terrien. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes to get instant access to each new episode. If you really like the show, give us a rating too. We can also be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us in this episode. We'll chat again soon. Kids love learning. Um, they do. So it's, it, yeah. I mean, you have to be really bad to turn them off. Uh, I think, <laughs> you know, so they, <laughs> they're just, true. they just really, they just really want to learn. So as long as you meet them halfway there, it, it's usually going to be a pretty positive experience. Yeah.